So we realize that some of you have not been here all 27 weeks of Revelation, and you're like, oh my goodness, how do I get caught up with, uh, with, with 21 chapters before the next 30 seconds? And luckily for you, I'm doing a quick recap before we get into chapter 22. So I want to give you the overview, and, and, and this book is so unusual and so profound. I just want to give you this, this quick overview of all the chapters so that we would sort of see where we fit into today. Chapters 1 through 3. John the Apostle, the friend of Jesus, the one who wrote the book of John, and the one who wrote the, the other pastoral letters of, of John, he, he's exiled to this island called Patmos. And see, John was a threat to the kingdom of Rome. He was subversive. He was having other people follow Jesus and not the empire. When, when they made you offer a pinch of incense to the emperor, he, he wouldn't allow his community to do that. And it was too politically sensitive to kill John like they did with everybody else. So they sent him to rot and to die on this sun-bleached island called Patmos. He was in exile. And, and it says that when he was on in the Lord's day in prayer, so he's spending time in prayer, he, he gets this grand vision that, that we know now of the book of Revelation. And, and John is creative and energetic as he writes. And he writes sort of everything with this dual layer of it means one thing, but it also is, has this deeper meaning as well. So it starts with this vision of Jesus. And it was a throwback to, to this dream that Daniel had of, of this tall statue. But, and, he, and he describes Jesus from head to toe. And his old friend Jesus is standing right in front of him on the island of Patmos. And Jesus says, hey, I've got this message for these seven churches and, and we remember um, that numbers are significant in the book of Revelation because numbers are symbols, not... Thank you, John. You know, you're the one person after 22 weeks. Oh, man. I joked that I'm going to have like a white horse available. I'm going to just ride off into the sunset after this series. You'll never hear from me again. No, um, so numbers are symbols, not statistics. And, and so... Were these literal churches that, yeah, you could actually go visit the locations of these churches today? Did they have actual problems? We do know from historical records that, that Jesus was probably addressing actual churches, but the number seven here, there was more churches he could have addressed, but he meant this as an address to all the churches. And in a nutshell, the message was to don't buy into the lies of the empire, that don't be formed by the empire, don't be formed by the empire, which he'll later call Babylon, but be formed by the Lamb who we'll meet in later chapters, to not buy into those lies. Chapters 4 and 5, this is the, the theological center. Like, it, it, in, if you were taking this as the theology of Revelation, you know, in class, you would spend a lot of time in chapters 4 and 5, because this is, bam, the theological center of the book. Chapters 4 and 5, we see the throne room of God. And in that song, the Revelation song, like, clothed with rainbows, if you're here and you're like, what on earth are they singing? Well, it, there's this message, chapter 4 and 5, they, they, talk, they describe God clothed in this rainbow and all creation singing, and, and it's just this beautiful sight. And really what it's doing is symbolically saying that God has all power, all promise, all security, He has all things in heaven. And one of the things we see in chapter 4 and 5, and this is why it's the center, is the Almighty God sitting on the throne, and he's got this scroll in his hand, and there's seven seals on this scroll. And this scroll becomes central to the entire book. And, and these seven seals, it, you know, it, it means it's really sealed up. It's all sealed up. It's all powerful. And the question is, who, who could do it? Who could open this scroll? 
Because if you understood kings and the way that they operated, only one who matched the power of the king had the ability to open the, scroll, the edict of the king. And, and that was because you had to be, have the same authority as that king to carry out that edict. And, and so the question became, who is worthy? And John cried and he wept because they didn't find anyone who was worthy. But then an angel announced, there is one who is worthy. It's the lamb who looks as if he had been slain. So in our songs, you hear about the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. This is the language we've been talking about the last 22 weeks. And so Jesus is not an actual lamb. Because what John does is he uses symbols all through the book of Revelation. Because it's an apocalypse. It's a type of genre of writing that was widely used throughout the day. There's this lamb sitting in the center of the throne. Again, a great theological picture that that Jesus and God are are one. And there's the seven spirits, which there's not really seven. It just means the complete spirit of God right there. A Trinitarian picture. Uh, the, The throne room right there. And the lamb goes and grabs the scroll from the hand of the Almighty. He is worthy to preside over all of history. That scroll, what does that scroll contain? That scroll is what we looked at last week, the new heaven, the new earth. God's plan for all of humanity. When you you look at at, um, Matthew and Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray, he he teaches them to pray for God's will on heaven as it is, or I mean, God's will on on earth as it is in heaven. That's where he teaches the disciples to pray. And that's what this scroll is, is that God's will would come to all of humanity. That's what this scroll is. And so the question is, who is worthy? The answer is, it is Jesus who is worthy. The lamb who looks as if he has been slain because he's been raised to life. And then chapters 6 through 11, what happens is that scroll, the seals begin to pop off. And, and, you know, we we talked a little bit, I don't know if you remember this, we talked a little bit about war powers theory. And and that is, whenever there is a steady power, like Babylon in, in Revelation, you know, the Roman government, whenever there's a steady power, and then there's a rising power at the point of the time where they intersect, there's conflict. And the thing is that, that as the seals are popped off, there's these different judgments that happen because as the church begins to grow, as this plan for humanity begins to be revealed, there's a lot of conflict with the world. And we see these in, in the seven seals, and we see these in the bowl judgments and the trumpet blasts, and we, we see them all through the book of Revelation. And if you're really interested, go check out our podcast, and, and, and you could just nerd out to 22 weeks of Revelation and, and have fun with that. Um, but in any case, chapter 6 through 11, something interesting happens. There's this question all through the book of Revelation. It, it, and it talks about these different plagues that come and things like that. And it's a throwback to Egypt and, and the idea of Pharaoh you know, God trying to get Pharaoh to let his people go. Now, could God have totally wiped out Pharaoh and just said, go ahead and go? Yeah, but he wanted Pharaoh to want to do it. And he wanted Pharaoh to repent because Pharaoh mattered too, but Pharaoh never repented. At one point, he, he loosened up. and He said, okay, the people can go. But then what did Pharaoh do? He came after him again. And, and so there's that connection all the way back to the Exodus, all through Revelation. And the question is, well, no one was saved. All this happened, all these plagues happened, all these seals came, but still, no one repented. And the question is, well, what gets people to repent? Who will repent? Because part of the mission of Revelation is that all humanity would hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that people would come and put their faith in the Lamb. That's part of the the whole uh, mission of the book of Revelation. 
But in chapters 6 through 11, one of the things that we see are these little mini parables that happen throughout the book. John is told to eat this scroll, just like Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll. And one of the things you have to remember is that, that, that John is just a student of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is everywhere through the book of Revelation. And, and the message of that, and let's go too deeply back, but the message of that was that we're not supposed to, people who, to be people who just know the word and just go, here you go, here's what the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. But we're to be a people who ingest the word, a people who become the message. And then the very next chapter is these two witnesses. And we talked about these two witnesses in terms of that they're the church. And, and what's interesting about that is just this reminder that the church is a people, it's not a place. And it always has been that way, and there's always been that tension of, well, what about the temple, and well, what about the people? No, Jesus reminds us the church is the people, not necessarily this place, although this place is nice. It's great. But the, you see this, the power of these witnesses. They put on sackcloth, which means they're repentant. And, and they look like Jesus, and, and they're out there preaching the gospel day after day, and, and they're killed by the world, and then they come back to life. And, and in other words, they follow the footsteps of the Lamb. And then it says nine-tenths came to know Jesus. Nine-tenths of the city. In other words, many people were saved. Because of these two witnesses who looked and sounded like Jesus. Because they ingested the word of God. Chapters 12 through 14. It's a dramatic retelling of Jesus coming to earth. And and the way that John does it, and you kind of need to be a student of the first century. and, And you have to understand the myth of the God Apollos. But the way he does it is the same as the myth of the God Apollos. That that there's this dragon that tried to destroy Apollos and all that stuff, and he, and he essentially inserted characters there because this was a powerful story. This is a story that people would have known. This is a story that, you know, uh, we, we immediately, we talk about Indiana Jones, and you're like, okay, yeah, which one? We, we, the other day I was in a discussion about Back to the Future, and it was just like, we, you know, we went on that whole tangent of like, well, what, what storyline are we talking about here? We just know these stories, and this is a story they would have known. But really, one of the things John tries to get at in chapters 12 through 14 is to remind the church there's this allure to Babylon. Babylon is Rome, and, and, and Rome is real flashy. And, and Rome likes to do things like say, oh, buy now, pay later. Rome likes to do things like say, hey, c- come be a part of this kingdom and, and find your significance and stuff and things. Rome liked to do things like saying, you know, what's really good is that you'd be famous. That's what's really important in life. You know what's really good and important in life is that you don't look old because no one wants to look old. You want to look young. That's what Rome likes to do. What's really important is, is that you, you act in a certain way. That's the lure of Babylon, to come and, and be a part of this false kingdom, looking for your security in everything but Jesus. And one of the things we found in, in chapter 7 People are marked by the Lamb, but then in chapter 13, people are marked by that life, by the life of Babylon, by complete incompleteness. That's what the number 666 was. It was, a, it was a reference to Nero, and it's also a reference back to Solomon. Completely incomplete. Somebody who constantly seeks after wealth and fame and fortune, but that'll never fill them up because that'll never be enough. People who lose their identity in that. Chapters 15 and 19 remind us that whatever one of these two kingdoms you tie your identity to, that will be your fate. 
So if you tie your identity, and, and so much of Revelation is about identity, if you tie your identity to back to the Babylon, back to Babylon, then that'll be your fate. You will die with Babylon. And, and if you tie your identity to the Lamb, then you will go to the new heaven and the new earth. Or actually, the new heaven and new earth will come to you. That's what happens. In chapter 20 and 22, it's just sort of this, we learn about evil is coming to an end. And, and the day is not yet come, but the, lamb, the day the Lamb eventually wins and defeats all evil and makes all things new. And that He even restores the garden of creation that we ruined due to sin. We learned that at the center of this new creation is the Lamb, who is Jesus, and He gives light to all of creation. And we learn that He is coming. So let's finish this off today. Flip with me to Revelation uh, chapter 22. And I know I did the first five verses, but chapters 20 and 22 is something that like, I could probably spend six weeks on. Just these two chapters. But we're spending two weeks on them. So I, I'm sorry um, t- I'm going to reteach a little bit of chapter 22 that I taught last week because I only hit on one little part of that. So Revelation 22, it is literally the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. So if you need any help, uh, just go to the end and it's there. <laughs> I'm going to read this in its entirety. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the I'm sorry, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and their name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down and worshipped the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, with your fellow prophets, and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy or this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they might have the right to the tree of life, and they may go outside this... I'm sorry, that they... I just messed up my spot. Blessed are the ones who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magical arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. 
In the Spirit, the, the bride says, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy on this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes the words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share of the tree of life and the holy city which they are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Right in the very beginning of this text, it says, read these words aloud to the entire church. And I'm glad to say that I've, I've now done that. I've read the entire book of Revelation to you out loud. And that was part of my goals of this series. But I want to start with verses 1 through 5. It's this beautiful picture, if you, if you kind of look back at that, of this water coming from underneath the throne. And, and this water goes out from the throne, and there's a tree of life on each side, and it says his, his leaves are for the healings of the nations. I wish I had the time with you to go through Ezekiel 47, but that, that would just take up most of what we have for the time we have for today. So I'm just going to ask you, um, as good students of the Bible, if you could just go home and, and read Ezekiel 47, maybe it's in your quiet time tomorrow, I, I don't know, but, and, and then just look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22 and just see the brilliance of, of the comparison there. But Ezekiel 47 is a powerful image to John. It's like uh, Eden Restored, chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, is like the sister imagery. He took that text from there. And it's a powerful image to John. And John writes about water a lot. But in in chapter 47, like chapter 22, it says there's this water of life that, that comes from the throne. And in 47, it talks about it coming from the temple. But then it cleanses everything. And that fruit trees grow, and it bears fruit in and out of season, and it even goes into the Dead Sea, and it, and it pushes out all the salt of the sea, and it teems with life. That's the water that comes from God, this living water. That's the image found in Ezekiel 47. That's the image that John wants you to see in Revelation 22, that it pushes out all the old, and it's all the new, it's all the life. It pushes out death, and there's life there. Years earlier, when John was watching Jesus and walking with him, he recorded this event. This woman was sitting at the well, and this is found in John chapter 4. And, and, and John says, you know, or, I'm sorry, Jesus says, hey, you're looking for this to quench your thirst, but I can give you living water. This is a theme that goes all through John's writing. And if you want to know where that comes from, or what that means, is Jesus. He himself is the well of the water of life. And he himself can quench your thirst. He himself can satisfy your desires. And it's an interesting thing. So if you've been paying attention to this book, you know it's a book of contrast. That every city actually has an interesting woman attached to it. So for Babylon, um, and you don't have to excuse me, but this is what the text says. It, It says that there's this whore of Babylon, this woman, this prostitute. And that's what the text says. And and she's constantly offering a cup of wine to drink. And, and in chapter 18, it talks about this intoxicating allure of this wine and how it leads people to sin in Babylon. 
And yet, in this new city, in the new Jerusalem, there's a water of life, and all who come to it will never thirst. In the, in the, the city of the bride, there's a water of life. And, and there's this contrast that all the way even to the very end, John, what John is trying to say here is, which cup are you going to drink from? Are you going to drink from the cup of Babylon, or are you going to drink from the water of life? I mean, which one is it? Constantly, John is forcing us to decide as he writes this book, I should say Jesus is reminding us that we have to make a decision. Which cup is it that we're going to drink from? It's a book of juxtapositions and contrasts between Jer- Jerusalem and the, the Babylon and between Babylon and the bride and between the dragon and the lamb. It's, it's constant throughout the book of Revelation. He's trying to remind the church, you have a choice. You have a choice. Which cup will you drink from? Where the cup of Babylon brings plagues and death, the water from the Lamb brings life. Don't buy into the lie of Babylon. Drink from the water of life. So even at the close of this remarkable book, we have an invitation to living water. But like I said, it's also a reminder to not buy into the lie. Because one of the things that talks about, about Babylon, and, and Babylon really isn't just Rome, it's, it's it's all people searching after human power and authority. That's what Babylon is. It's the spirit of Babylon. And, and, and what John is trying to say here is that, that lie, that's built on lies. That's built on not the truth. I mean, Jesus' city is built on the truth, whereas Babylon is consistently built on the lie. Oh, you'll feel better if you do this. Oh, it'll be better for you if you, if you just did this. Or, you know, if you just had more, you'd feel more significant. That's the lie of Babylon. I, I told you a few weeks back that I was driving home from the desert one week, and, and, um, and I saw this, this billboard that, that said, it, it was a billboard for new driveways, and there was a beautiful woman on the billboard, and it said, what does your driveway say about you? And like I told you, I just felt totally incomplete, because my driveway stinks compared to that driveway. And I thought, oh, I need to go spend more money on a driveway. I'm totally joking. But that's the lie. That's, and it's found everywhere. What's your identity going to be tied to? See, Satan always wants to attack our identity just as he attacked Jesus. You'll notice that in chapter 4 of Matthew, when he went and, and took Jesus, and Jesus was out in the desert, and he went and said, I'm going to tempt Jesus. He didn't say, um, hey, Jesus. He said, if you are the son of God. He attacked his identity. Satan always wants to go after identity. Don't buy into that lie. Find your identity in the one who is the beginning and the end. I want to keep going here because we could spend so much time on this. After this, John reminds the church what he said in the very beginning. He says, look, I am coming soon. In biblical studies, there's this word called an inclusio. And, and an inclusio is something that's put, is like bracket ends of a book. There, it's a literary device. You put something in the beginning, you put something in the end, and it means all this that's in the middle, you know, is to be looked through these lenses. For example, uh, when Luke wrote the book of Luke, he talked about Jesus being bored, and, and he, not bored, born. When Jesus was being born, and he, and he said the angels had this great joy. There was mega joy. In fact, the Greek word is mega joy. And at the very end of the book, 
the disciples see the resurrected Jesus and they're leaving. And it says, then they had great joy. And he uses the exact same words, mega joy. Well, in other words, what Luke is trying to say is, all of this, the story of Jesus, should be looked at with, this is a great story of joy for all of humanity. That's what an inclusio does. That's what an inclusio is. And see, John is just such a smart guy. He, he, puts them, he put it all through the book of Revelation. He put them... He put them in there a lot. And so I want to talk about these two inclusios. They're not coincidences. They're on purpose. Um, first, the Revelation 1.3. Uh, I think this will be up on the screen. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. See, blessed is me because I read aloud the words of the prophecy. All right. And blessed are those who hear it and take heart of what is written in it. That is you. So blessed are you if you hear it and do it and take heart in it. Because the time is near. Revelation 22.10. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of the scroll, because the time is near. John wants you to see everything in the middle here, with a great sense of urgency, because the time is near. All of Revelation is supposed to be looked at that way. No one knows when that time will be, Jesus said. Not, not even I, but just the Father knows. But the time is near. One of the things that we learned in Revelation is that there's this sense that Jesus is always coming. But he's always coming when his church acts like him. That's what we learn. We're supposed to be Jesus' presence in the world. His hands, his feet. Why? Because we're marked by the Lamb. Our identity is found in the Lamb. We're supposed to be the church that wears sackcloth, that's repentant. We're supposed to be the church that's the light in the world. And, and that's where John sees the church having the most power and impact. Chapter 7. When is the time near? When we're marked by him. One of the things that we find in chapter 7, this might be a fill-in. I can't remember if I did fill-ins or not. Yeah, I did. Great. When we're marked by him. Chapter 7. In other words, chapter 7 is when Jesus marks his people. And we find later in chapter 14 that the mark on the forehead is his name. And we're, we're found in his identity. So Jesus, the time is coming. Jesus is always, the time is near. Jesus is always coming when we're marked by him, when we live into the identity that we are sons and daughters of the king. One of the things I love to do on my spare time and I, is apparently is risk death. I love skateboarding. Um, I'm too old to do it probably, but I still go. I like big concrete pools and bowls and stuff like that, and I don't know why. I just It's like that part of my childhood will not die. I ride a wooden toy. I love it. Okay, it's part of what I do. Like if I, if, if I have some downtime, I'm like, I'm going to go to the skate park. And, you know, the young kids are like, aren't you a little old for this? I'm like, yeah, probably. But I like doing it. it it's a great workout. It's a lot of fun. And I just have always been a fan. I've done it since I was a little, little kid. And I was watching this video this last week, this old pro, he had to get back surgery. And he's talking and he said, man, if I didn't have skateboarding, I, I don't know what I would do with my life. I, I think I would, I think I'd probably end it. And I was just, I was so sad by hearing this video, by hearing him say that. Because your identity is formed by whatever you place in the center of your life. And, and this is, I think, Jesus' call through the Gospels is, is to reorganize your life that you put Jesus at the center. I think that's his call all the way through the Gospels. When he says, repent and follow me. I think that's what that means. 
and, and the ones who are marked by the Lamb in chapter 7 are the ones who have done that. The ones who have put Jesus in the center of their lives. And their lives are consistently marked by them in, in the words they say, in the actions that they have. And the deeds all the way at the very end. But whatever you place at the center of the life will eventually mark your life. And I think that's a really important point all the way through the book of Revelation. So the time is near when we are marked by him. The time is near when we eat his word. In chapter 10, I I told you about this already just to review. When we eat his word, Revelation reminds us the church is powerful when we don't just know the message of God. Many people, I mean, you could go on the streets and ask people, what does the Bible say? They could tell you, tons of people, I, I, I have this, another fun thing I like to do is talk with atheists and, and people with different worldviews, and, and I've even spent some time um, even on some panels and talking with some of these folks and all that stuff. And they can tell you the message of God. They just don't believe it. They can tell you the Bible, some of them better than you and me. They can tell you all that stuff, but they don't buy it. They don't believe it. We, Jesus is most powerfully coming through his church when his church eats his word. When, we, when we're not just knowers of the word, but when we live it out. And I think we intrinsically know this. We're all searching for something that's true and authentic in life. And, and what can be more powerful? What could be more powerful than a teenage couple saying, we're, we're not going to have sex until we get married? And that's not our world today. What could be more powerful than that, though? What could be more powerful of a witness than somebody saying, you know what, forget what the world says is important. I'm going to follow Jesus. What could be more powerful than that? What could be more powerful than somebody being so wronged and and they say, you know what I need to do is I, I need to forgive you and we need to try and work this out. What could be more powerful than that? That's what happens when a church, when a person eats the word of God, when they become the message chapter 11, that Jesus is near, the time is near when the church, when we witness to the world. Chapter 11 reminds us that the church is the light. It's the olive trees. We stand firm and wear sackcloth in Revelation. Where, where are people seen the most powerfully coming to faith? And that's in chapter 11. It's because the church steps out in their identity of Christ followers. And, and having eaten the word, then they go out. They step out. And they share this message with the world. They pray with people, with hurting and lost people. And they become the message out in the world. Jesus is coming soon. The time is near. He will one day return in the body. The day and the hour is unknown. But Jesus can come into your life too wherever you are, because when you're marked by him and you are the message and you're called to be a witness, that's one of the ways that Jesus is in our world today. You were literally created for this. And the next inclusio tells us that, that you were literally created for all of this. Revelation 1.8 says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 21.6, see, bookends now. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Revelation 22.13, 
Another book ends. This is really important. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. One of the things I want you to know as we close out in Revelation is that you were modeled after Jesus. In the beginning of all time, when God created humanity, you were modeled after Jesus. And let me take a minute and prove that to you. Three ways Jesus speaks of himself and his significance. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end. Now, in English, this sounds like Jesus is just repeating himself, right? Because Alpha, Omega, beginning and end of the Greek alphabet, okay, we get that. Um, first and last, beginning and end, all that stuff. But in Greek, the word beginning is arche. I think I'm saying that correctly, arche. Where in English, we get the word, or the word archetype or architecture. Saying, I am the beginning is actually a radical claim. It means everything has its source in Jesus. It means that everything is stamped with the character of Jesus, and it is our destiny to fulfill what is stamped on our lives. The arche is what flows from the throne, the living water. I am, um, I'm sorry, in the, in the Greek, the, the end, I am the end, is I am the teleos, or the, where Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect, That word is telos. And and what that means is completeness. Be completed in him. It's the logical conclusion to the beginning is the end. One of the things we try and do in sermons is is take one point to his furthest logical conclusion. The end is the furthest logical conclusion from the beginning. So when Jesus says, I am the beginning and the end, in other words, what he's saying is, it is your inherent destiny to build in yourselves, to have in yourselves the character of God. The character of Jesus. Telos, or telios is an acorn that becomes an oak tree. The telios of humanity is to follow in the architect, is to follow in the archetype, is to follow in the blueprints that were set out. And that blueprint is your life, that, that when God saw his son and decided to make humanity, he said, I'm going to model this after somebody. So what Jesus is saying is, I am the archetype. I am your blueprint. Your most inherent destiny is to become like me. This is what Colossians says. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says this, The Son is the, inv- is the image of the invisible God, the force, firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head, the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I love that verse because the next verse that I don't put on there says that for you were once enemies of God and now you're not because of the blood that was shed on the cross. Jesus was before all things. This is what the Bible is trying to say is that the Trinity existed, pre-existed humanity and that when God made humanity, he used blueprints and that blueprint was Jesus. So you have the blueprint of Jesus in your life. It doesn't mean you become Jesus or anything like that. What it means is that, that your inherent destiny is to Take on the character of Jesus. 
in everything you do, in your work, in your personal life, in your relationship with your kids, in your relationship with your spouse, everything you do is to take on the character of Jesus. So when he says, I'm the beginning and the end, he, he doesn't necessarily just mean it as a place filler. What he's saying is everything in the book of Revelation is, is pushing you to take on that identity of Jesus. It's pushing you to choose. What is it going to be, Babylon or Jesus? What's it going to be? Genesis 1.27 tells us, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. See, what Jesus is trying to do for the church is that your true identity can only be found in him. Identity is powerful. Don't buy into the lie of the parody of Babylon. Don't follow the dragon. Don't be stamped with the identity of the beast. That's what the beast is trying to do. Jesus is the archetype, the one who our lives need to begin to reflect. Whatever you place at the center of your life, it will become what you worship. Whatever you worship will become your identity. Whether it's Babylon or the beast, whether it's a little wooden toy, whatever that is, don't buy into the lie. I love the way that Jesus ends his statement in Revelation 22. He says that he is basically the living water. Anybody can come to him and get a drink, and he'll give freely because he's the beginning and the end. But there's one last thing. In Revelation 22, we learn a lot about Jesus' identity because he, he says it over and over and over again. And Revelation 22:16, actually B, the, the last end of this verse, it says, I am the root of the offspring of David, the bright morning star. I put this um, uh, Bob Gutzward quote in your notes this morning. And I may have put it on the screen. I don't remember. It says, The morning star often appears between 2 and 3 at night. When the darkness is complete and the faintest signs of morning are not yet visible, so small that it threatens to vanish, the star seems unable to vanquish over the overpowering darkness. Yet, when you see the morning star, you know the night has been defeated. For the morning star pulls the morning in behind it just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom behind it. When Jesus tells the church, I am the bright morning star, you know, people read the book of Revelation and said, this is great, but when's this going to happen? When is this going to happen? And, and Jesus, I think, knew that people would ask that question. So to say, I am the morning star, means you're in this holding pattern. People, no one knows when Jesus is going to come back. Only the Father. It's His timing. But He's waiting for people to figure out. He's waiting for the church to be witnesses. He's waiting for this all to happen, for people to find out that He is the beginning and the end and to come to their own teleos moment with Jesus, where they can be found complete in Him. Also, the Morning Star reference should lead us to the conclusion that the time is always near. If this is true, how should we live? Using this analogy, I think the analogy of morning and night that Jesus pulls in right here at the end is that we've got to resist the agenda of the night. The night is commonly seen in this period as sin and death and darkness and stuff. But if the night is eventually going to be defeated, why try and keep up with it? Just like Babylon, we know the end of Babylon. It's eventually defeated. Why do we feel the need to keep up with it? Why keep up with it? 
but we must embrace the agenda of the day of the light. Romans 13, I love this. It talks about this idea of the morning star in Romans, and it says this, 13, this is 11 through 14. And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than we first, when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual morality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. We must enter the dark of night with the agenda of the day. Knowing that the time is near doesn't warn us to hide, but rather since we who know who wins, it causes us to furiously go out into the world and bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bright morning star. We're in somewhat of a holding pattern but he's just waiting to pull the kingdom in with it. You'll all be happy to know that the book says that Revelation 22 also goes on and says don't add or remove anything. This is a common, uh, common theme found in many prophecies and any other prophecies even not found in, in the Bible, in the Apocrypha. But also you'll be glad to know because that means I can't just write four or five more chapters of the book of Revelation and extend this series a few weeks. That We're definitely over now. <laughs> then he said it ends with just this simple yes i'm coming soon i'm coming soon and the church responds amen come lord jesus jesus says i am coming soon and the church responds amen come lord jesus i want to suggest and i want to invite the band to come because i just want to suggest that as we close the book of revelation that this be our prayer today that come lord jesus come so not i i mean not like right now, not a week from now, not every, but with every breath we take. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Not tomorrow, today, right now, and tomorrow. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And I just want to close by, by praying, come, Lord Jesus, come in a little different way. So if you just bow your head and close your eyes with me as we close out this most remarkable book, let's pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, and pull the light in with you. Come, Lord Jesus, and lead the church into the darkest parts of the world. Come, Lord Jesus, and heal the sick and the dying. Come, Lord Jesus, and make right all that's wrong with this world. Come, Lord Jesus, and make me a light for you. Come, Lord Jesus, and lead me to the places that I don't even want to go. Come, Lord Jesus, And mark me with your love and your spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, into the darkest depths of my life that I don't want to share with anyone. Come, Lord Jesus, and help me to become your message. Come, Lord Jesus, and embolden me to be your witness. Come, Lord Jesus, and use this church to point others to the living water. Come, Lord Jesus, and use this church to proclaim that you are coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus, and use this church for global and local impact. Come, Lord Jesus, into my marriage. 
Come, Lord Jesus, into my relationship with my kids. Come, Lord Jesus, into my business practices. Come, Lord Jesus, into my everyday ethic. Come, Lord Jesus, into my every thought, into my every moment. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Everybody said, amen.